Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. everyone this is the ruck from the times and the sunday times and we are down to the last 16 in the champions cup we finally got there lewis reese zamet has decided he's aiming for the nfl the wallabies finally have a new head coach and there's a new snazzy netflix documentary coming out this week once again loads for us to get into welcome back i'm alfie reynolds with will kelleher once again hello how's it going lots going on isn't there six nations around the corner Everyone's found it quite difficult to get to their launch event in Dublin because of Storm Issa. Yeah. So that's why we don't have Alex today because he's over in the launch, although it sounds like it's been a chaotic journey for everyone. <laughs> Alex has been battling getting over to Ireland yeah. and some of the players and coaches and people yeah. that are meant to be there as well. I mean, it, to get it's one of those nights there were lots of our, our friends and colleagues texting each other on their progress of getting over and everyone's having different uh, versions of hell. And to be honest, I was quite glad I was sitting on my sofa because I'm not the best flyer. And reading about <laughs> some of the flights that were dropping in and ending up in Paris, and I was just like, I don't need that. So I'm quite happy just sitting at home watching some rugby on the, on the sofa. <laughs> quite right. Also joining us this week is Stuart Barnes. How are you, Barnesy? Uh, not too bad. Um, I still have a bit of a lingering cold, and um, if I laugh, it induces the most horrendous hacking cough. So not too many jokes today, boys. Uh, we never usually have any, so that's fine. We'll, we'll just keep it really serious before you bounce. No, you're serious. laughing. Don't laugh. No, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Got one in early there, Will. Good work. Uh, as I said in the intro, we're going to look back this week on the Champions Cup, the Lewis Reese Zamet shock decision last week as well, as he's going to pursue a career in the NFL. Joe Schmidt is the new Wallabies head coach. And I mentioned that Netflix have got a new series out. This is Six Nations Full Contact. It's coming out on Wednesday, and me and Will are going to have a chat with James Gay-Reese. He's the executive producer from Box to Box. They're probably best known as a production company for Formula One Drive to Survive, but they're the ones behind it. So we're going to be having a chat with him in this episode as well. Before that, though, Will, Europe finally got to the end of the pool stages. So we have our last 16 matches. The big talking point maybe to, to get right into here, and I'm sure that both of you have a view on this, is... The last 16 matches and the amount of those last 16 matches that are a repeat of yeah. matches we've seen in the pool. It's it's the Champions Cup. It gives with one and it takes with the other, doesn't it? Like We've had some good games over the weekend. I think quite a lot of the Champions Cup pool stages have been good to watch and good fun. There wasn't masses to sort out this weekend. The one that was kind of do or die, and I think Ron Nagara said it's kill or be killed, which is quite a nice quote, was Sale La Rochelle. But then La Rochelle just blasted Sale and Sale have had loads of injuries, so... They dropped into the Challenge Cup and La Rochelle went through. But yeah, then you get the draw and you look at it and you go, there are five repeats, I think it is, from the eight games. So the matches are Toulouse-Rassing, which is a new one, but that's a that's an all-domestic French tie. Uh, Leinster-Leicester, which they've just played. Northampton-Munster have just played. Bordeaux-Saracens, we know about, was the Bordeaux putting 50 on them 
two weeks ago. Harlequins Glasgow's a new one, thank God. And then Bulls Leon's a repeat. Stormers La Rochelle's a repeat. And next to Bath is another domestic game. So you're just looking at it and you're going, oh, we, we, we really want the Champions Cup to be what it should be. And then at quite a lot of turns, it, it sort of lets us down a bit. Barnsley, do you think there's any point that once we get to these matches, bearing in mind that they don't happen for ages now because of the Six Nations and everything else, that we'll be more excited than it feels at the moment when we've just got to the end of a pool stage and we're looking at those games thinking, well, we've just seen that tie, we've just seen that one. Do you think by the time they come round, we'll have more appetite for them? Well, there's no doubt when they're fresh in the mind and they've just happened, the thought of them playing again isn't quite as exciting. By the time the Six Nations is over and Monsters Red Army gets on the march to the East Midlands. You know, things can turn around and there'll be a few of us writing about who'd have believed that they conceded 50 points at pool stage and beat them. So all is not lost there, but I I, I, I just feel the the whole uh, format is, is wrong at the moment. Not just what's coming with the uh, round of 16, but what we've had. Broadcasting, you always have to sell your product, but this weekend there was an awful lot of... Um, Everything's, you know, everything's at stake in, in, in some way or other in the game. And I was hearing, you know, if they get a bonus point, they could qualify for the Challenge Cup. Now, come on, guys. It's, it hasn't functioned. We knew pretty much everything that was happened. As Will said, apart from Sale versus La Rochelle, there wasn't a game when you thought it's all on here. I feel that the format this year was better than last. And I yeah. know, Will, you wanted to come in on how it could be changed for the better. Yeah. Is change what we need again is the only thing. <laughs> I know. So I think the, the change that I'll advocate for isn't a fundamental shift. It's not changing the pool structure and things like that because we are wary of the fact that it's changing quite regularly and you can't build a sort of consistent narrative or connect with people or explain what how the competition works if you keep changing it every five minutes. And that's the same with rugby's law book and everything else, isn't it? If, if one season that means something and the next it doesn't, then how are you ever going to connect with new fans? Here's a way, and this is a this is I'm going to tee this up by saying that this is a borrowed opinion. <laughs> this is thanks to a Twitter account called the Traveling Reserve. So props to whoever that who runs that account because they've come up with a better way of getting to different last sixteen ties. Okay, okay, and it's really simple. It's basically imagine like the World Cup where. Pools A, B, C, and D. If you're in A and you win it, you play the second in B. Yep. And if you're in A and you're second, you play the winner of B. So there'd be an extended version of that, essentially. So you'd play A1 against B4, for example. So that'd be Bordeaux against Racing. Against Racing, yeah. And you'd have A2 against B3, for example. So that would be Bulls against Bath. So essentially, if you went through all of that, the fixtures you'd get instead, which would all be different, would be Bordeaux Racing. Bulls, Bath, Toulouse, Saracens, Harlequins, Lyon, Northampton, Leicester, cool, Exeter, La Rochelle, Leinster, Munster, very cool, Stormers, Glasgow. So I think that would just be a really simple tweak to the format that wouldn't change much fundamentally, but just be a way of, instead of having that full log thing, but I think there you go, there's there's a possible constructive solution for the Champions Cup organisers for free. We've given it to them for free. Which would Can mean... I you I yeah, go on, Barnsley. Go on, Barnsley. Scrap the whole thing, burn it down. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, construct, it's constructive, but it's very different. If you look at the European Cup in football, it was a mighty tournament. It was very exciting. It was drawn like the FA Cup, but someone on the road realised football is the most profitable sport globally, and they realised that having pools meant more matches, and more matches meant more money. Now, rugby's problem is... More matches means more blows, more injuries, more stress, more strain on players, even though the game clearly does need more money. But we've gone away from uh, six pool games and we've cut things back uh, to try and keep games down. So I would suggest that actually now desert the pool stage because that is something that was there for another reason. It doesn't need to function now. If you have Eight teams from each of the three leagues in it. You've got 16 teams to have a playoff. That's 32 teams going to the European Cup. And I am saying we should go random for the simple reason that it's too predictable with with the seeding situation. 
we start straight away with a draw. And why do you, why must you be rewarded because you had a good season the previous year? Why must be, you be punished because you didn't have a good season? Let's start afresh and let's draw it. Let's really ramp up the excitement. If it's a do or die in the first or the second or the third round, then teams are going to have to take strong teams there or they're going to have to choke. So I'd go the other way. I, I, I wouldn't have structure. I wouldn't have pools. I would have um, a draw, a random draw, and let's just see where it goes. Sport, when all is said and, said and done, folks, it's something we don't talk about, but there's a huge degree of luck in it. On the pitch, why not have it on it? Off so it. devil's advocate point here, and I, if I'm yeah. putting on it, I'm never, ever going to get this role, but if I'm a CEO of, a, let's say, an English club or a Welsh region... I'm going, okay, so you've we've taken out a guaranteed two home games and four pool games, guaranteed mm-hmm. money for those. Like, let's say I'm Cardiff and I'm saying, well, I've got Quinns and Bath, I'm going to sell those games out. To you're basically saying you could play one match in the European Cup and be gone for good. So Two. One home two, game. Okay, home, home and away, away yeah. Home so you get one away. home game and then you're gone for good. And then what will happen? They'll all rearrange fixtures friendlies basically which is what they're doing during the six nations period because they don't have enough money coming through the door all the ticket prices will go up to 140 quid it's already 100 quid to go and watch bath at the wreck because they don't have as many matches as they usually did and then the other point i want to make and i do quite like your idea barnsey it'd be quite a fundamental shift but it would be fun to watch you're also adding a match aren't you so there'd be nine matches in total so you'd go two in the last in the 32 up to four for the last 16 six for the quarterfinal eight for the semi and nine. So at the moment, there are eight matches to win the Champions League. It's, it's only one game more for two teams. Yeah, for two teams, yeah. But you still need a whole game. extra weekend in the calendar yeah. is what it would mean, wouldn't it? I understand that. What we're getting at here, though, first team that goes out will only, instead of uh, one home and one away, they'll lose a home and an away game. So they lose two games. No doubt about that. That's okay. A couple of things here. One, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to organise a, a great tournament that will uh, inject excitement into the game or are, we, or are we just trying to hang on financially for the clubs? Sometimes the two can't stick together. And I would argue now, this is where it becomes a matter of teams have to be bloody good on the field. You know, in England at the moment, we don't want relegation because we're scared of a jeopardy that goes the wrong way. When you when you don't have a negative to go with a plus, you have a weakened competition. We know the we know the Premiership. There's better rugby because there are fewer teams and and there are stronger squads, but it still hurts. There's something in the gut that's not right about that. And in Europe, there there should be a situation when they say, okay, you got knocked out in the first round. It's tough luck. Well, I agree with what we've hit, spoken about there that the structure still isn't perfect. I do think it's still been better than previous years. Yeah, I've yeah. quite enjoyed I've enjoyed the pool stage actually probably a lot more than I expected to. Let's get into some of the games because we could probably spend the whole pod trying to work out exactly the <laughs> how to how to structure it and we wouldn't be able to get onto anything else. Where did we want to start? I wanted to ask you actually Barnsley, Munster 23, Northampton 26. I thought this was the game of the weekend. Brilliant win for Northampton and you particularly in your sky days would have spent plenty of times Toman Park and watching some of those great Munster teams. Just where do you where do you rank that Northampton win away to Munster with a man sent off like that? That it just for a Northampton team that have been picking up win after win and some really notable ones. That is just another massive scalp for them. Toman Park is my favourite European venue. It's the hardest place to go. I can recall when Sale in there trophy winning year in England everyone in the English press was bigging up sale and they went to Munster and Shabal and co they got flattened there's nothing <laughs> Munster like more than bringing down an English reputation and there's nothing Munster like more than a howling wind and the rain pouring it's a sort of you know it's the night where King Lear's fall is just hiding from the elements and you just want to get away and in the past, you'd have just thought Northampton, for all their excellence, won't be able to handle it. Uh, and they did. Uh, the elements they handled, a monster team who I, I felt played very well the week before and did not play badly. And of course, nearly 10 minutes of the first half with 13 men and the entire second half with 14. I thought 
This is how you play rugby. In the first half into the wind, that didn't kick, short passes, Finn Smith kept the ball alive. They ran it really well. They were 7-3 up till five minutes before half time, And then it unfolded, the yellow and the red card and 12 points against them. But then they came back and they played a completely different second half game. When they had the wind with them, Smith stopped carrying. They started turning. They, the attacks were going right to left, right to left, right to left. Finn Smith would just spin on a sixpence pirouette and put it in the corner. It was brilliant tactical play. I think it was their finest performance in Europe. Unbelievable drop goal from Finn Smith in the rain as well. That, that We talked about the Storm Issa coming in. That You saw the, the beginnings of it in the second half of that match, but just amazing. And I'd, lo- I'd love to discuss, though, the, the Langdon red card. Cause, and there was the Josh Caulfield by yeah, the Bristol game. They're kind of similar-ish areas, aren't yeah. they? Um, yeah. I don't, yeah. So my... My initial take on the Langdon one, as soon as I saw it, my gut reaction was, oh my God, what? How, how's he been sent off for that? And then the more you look at it, you sort of go, oh, maybe I can understand it. You saw that Courtney Laws was pretty perplexed about it. And Ty Byrne actually as well was sort of like, I'm sorry for you, mate, kind of shrug of his shoulders, wasn't he? Mm. He kind of knees the man in the head. Tom Ahern, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Tom Ahern, who ended up in hospital. So he's quite badly knocked out by it, which is, we don't usually look at the outcome of these things, but... That was a bad injury to him, so I hope he's all right. But yeah, Langdon sort of really obviously accidentally kneed him in the face the first time. And then his second knee also hit him at the side of the ruck, didn't it? I don't know. I'm just one of those where you're like, in such a dynamic situation, you're like, I'm not sure what he could have done differently there. What did you make of it, Barnsley? They said he was reckless, didn't they? No, if you're reckless, I think that means you you know what the rules of the laws of the game are and, and you don't give a damn about them and you go crazy. He, he he didn't do that. He didn't do that. And rucks, are const, breakdowns are a constantly moving thing. And it's not just there. It's not set up and you always run with the same body angle. There are people in the way. People are moving peripherally. You see things. He clearly didn't do it deliberately. And if that's reckless, then I'm seeing reckless incidents when someone accidentally loses their foot in or their knee just goes too close to someone Every other breakdown, you can get it. The difference with this one is he made a contact. It did look, the slow-mo made it look as if Langdon looked down. And in that moment, I think that's when he was in trouble. Because that's what got him, then yeah. I, th- I think the referee in his head thought, maybe he's looking. At, but I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to use reckless, because reckless is a get-out for a referee. Yeah. I just um, don't know why any player would intentionally look at someone on the ground and knee them in the face. I just have no well, idea why know. that would come through your mind. I don't know. Go back fifty years. Believe me, it happened all the time. Yeah, but in the modern game, like it's a bit like someone no, no, losing it, the head it, and it, properly punching someone in the face. You just go, no, just no one does that. It doesn't. Like, well, it's a bit like the Josh Caulfield one that I mentioned on yeah. Finley Beelham on the Friday night in the Bristol Connacht game, where he got a red card because there's a ruck. Caulfield's going in to clear out. Beelham's on the ground, and in slow motion, it doesn't look great because his boot makes contact with Beelham's head. But yeah. you kind of look at it and think. He's clearly just a big second row going into that ruck area to to try and clear out. Is that really worthy of a red card? And here's the next interesting element of it, which we are the journalist pod after all, the journalist hat back on. So Ellis Genge is watching that game on the telly and he tweeted at the time, there's no way in this world Josh Caulfield has intentionally stamped on his head. Every player watching that knows it too, which reminds us of Jack Knoll at the end of last season who tweeted about a red card for Ollie Woodburn. I think it was at Leicester for a tackle in the corner. And he said, that's one of the worst decisions I've ever seen in my life or words to that effect and ended up getting a 10 grand fine for it. So it's, it's so interesting. And we have to be careful ourselves on social media with things that we say and have to stand by, but reactive tweets do get you in trouble. So I wonder whether Genge will possibly be up against a beat because there's, there's precedent for that happening. If I was Ellis Genge's lawyer, I would be saying that he was only speaking about the intentions of the player rather than the decision of the referee, yeah. whereas Noel quite explicitly... Yeah, criticised the, the referee. And actually, only a, a, at the turn of the year, the RFU have up their sanctions for criticism of refs. And that's sort of mainly on pitch and at lots of levels. It's for every level of the game, but basically every sanction has grown by a couple of weeks if you get a ban for uh, something to do with a referee because they're really trying to crack down on it. Having seen Tom Foley leave Test Rugby, Wayne Barnes saying what he said about social media abuse and stuff like that. So it's a really fine line. If he does get some sort of ban, 
it'd be unlikely. The president's more of a fine. Then that's six nations areas, and England don't have a lot of depth of lucid prop, as we've talked about, with injuries and all sorts else. So that wouldn't be very clever. Well, speaking of England selection, uh, let's talk about Toulouse, Bath. Toulouse 31, Bath 19. I thought Bath gave a really good go at it for a lot of the game. It was 19 all for a chunk of it. And then Toulouse, just the power, the quality came through. Barnsley, what interests me with this was Ollie Lawrence at 12. I just wondered whether that was potentially a precursor ahead of the Six Nations. I think it is. I don't think it should be. He played very well. He played extremely well. But I think he can play better for England at 13. I think playing five metres wider of his fly half gives him that little bit of space. And people said to me, oh, yeah, but do you see that try he scored at 12? But actually, he didn't just run brick through a brick wall. He actually, he doesn't run at people. He runs at space. So yeah. when you think of that try he scored work. against Toulouse and you shift him five, five metres out, you say, well, actually, he might be able to score two of those or create another mm. one. So just because he did something brilliantly in one instance doesn't mean he can't do it even better. Uh, and I, I just think you can't go Slade and Lawrence. Slade is not a 12. S- simple as that. So who do you uh, go for? Because they didn't have a 12. There isn't, there isn't one in the squad, really. I, I, well, I, mean, I wrote yesterday, I think, I, I would go Fraser Dingwall because yeah. he's, intelli- he's intelligent, he's a communicator. There's every possibility that, you know, if they went the Northampton halfbacks, then it would make real sense to go Dingwall at 12. Mm. And I'd have someone like Slade on, on, on maybe on the bench. They, they just, this is a problem that Steve Borthwick was talking about in his in the Sunday papers this week, but they just don't have enough players in the Premiership who play 12 every week. But the only guy who's English qualified who's been playing at 12 has been Dingwall. And he's only done that three times because he's often more at um, 13. Having like, watched him a lot this season, he's not a 12 or a 13. He, yeah. He's a bloke who can play 12 or 13. He's legit. Lawrence can play 12, but you're losing a lot. Dingwall, you could play him 12 or 13, and you're probably going to get the same sort of player. So they could have had Nick Tompkins, Cam Redpath, Rory Hutchinson if they'd got in quicker, but they didn't. So those are three who are sort of British that have been regularly playing 12 for their clubs. Well, time is against us. Just to round off some of the other English clubs, Saracens, got through a come-from-behind decent victory against Leon, And I wanted to mention Saracens and Sale as well. Sale, obviously, defeat to La Rochelle. They drop in to the Challenge Cup. But both of those sides, I feel, are quite good examples of what Jamie George was talking about when he joined us on the podcast a couple of weeks ago of this season break almost being a little pre-season and how both those teams can come out of it. For Saracens, obviously, it's kind of gearing themselves up for a top four push and we'll see how they go in the Champions Cup. For Sale, you mentioned it the other week, Will, that you feel the Challenge Cup's probably about right for them at the moment. Yeah. And I think that's a, re- a realistic bit of silverware that, that they could potentially go and win as well. Yeah, so- yeah they've, they've got a horrendous injury list at the moment, so they would hope that by the time they get to those last 16 games in the Challenge Cup, they'll have a lot of players back fit. And also they're going away to the Ospreys. Um, the Ospreys put in a hell of a performance against the Lions in South Africa, which is an unbelievable win for a quite a young Ospreys team. But Sale, would, if they had their best team out, would probably fancy winning in Swansea or Bridgend or wherever they end up playing because they're trying to move stadiums, aren't they? So I think, yeah, it's a bit like 10 years ago or so, Quinn's dropping down in, or playing in that second tier competition and winning it. I think it's quite a good spot for some teams who maybe aren't ready to challenge in the Champions Cup. They can challenge in the Challenge Cup. There you go. There you go. Um, well, let's just finish yeah. it off then with uh, the Champions Cups. So we've got our last 16 matchups. One team from both of you right now. Who do you think wins it? Uh, I'm going to go Toulouse. That is going to be tricky for them. So they'll get they get through Racing. Racing shouldn't really be through. They've only beaten Cardiff and gone through, which is a flaw in the system there that we've talked about. So then they play Exeter or Bath, probably fancy themselves to beat one of those at home. Then... Uh, a selection of either Quinns, Glasgow, Bordeaux, or Sarries. If they got, if it was to lose Bordeaux, that would be an epic, wouldn't it? Semi-final. But then their their final would be awesome because it would be to lose against probably one of Leinster, La Rochelle, maybe the Stormers. If Stormers get a nice little run of Cape Town matches, um, well, they'd have one, and then they'd have to go to Leinster, wouldn't they? So maybe not there. I think there's there's one there's one sort of um, unknown maybe in there with the Bulls. I think. The Bulls have been winning games without their Springboks and they, they brought some back and beat a, a weakened Bordeaux team, 46-40, which is a hell of a scoreline. Um, 
And I don't know, like, so they're going to play Leon and probably beat them, and then they'll go to either Northampton or Munster. And if they've got their box playing, they've got some serious firepower out wide, like Kirtley Aronser and those guys. They, they're a hell of a prospect and a bit of an unknown quantity. It's just whether they can go to Dublin and beat Leinster, basically, or beat La Rochelle. Or the, but they could get the Stormers, who knows? So I'm still going to go for Toulouse, though, and then that would be their sixth Champions Cup win. Barnsley, what do you reckon? The team nobody will want to play is La Rochelle. They are brutal. Physically, psychologically and tactically, they're outstanding. I don't think Sale are a great team and they do have some injuries, but they just put them away at their will. Their problem is you look at Stormers away, that's a really tough game and I think they can win. But that would be like, uh, if they're winning Cape Town, that would be Champions Cup final intensity. Then... They go to their old mates, Leinster, in Ireland. In Dublin, yeah. In Dublin. And again, it's that's another final. And if they get through that, they then, to me, it looks like, you know, Toulouse, Racing are a little danger to them, but I, I think Toulouse are, played, are playing so well and their pack is so strong that with home advantage in, in their next two matches, guaranteed, I think they'll get themselves to a situation where they will have a clearer run to the final. And if La Rochelle got there, it would be an epic effort and they might just beat them. Well, what I hope we get now is a Toulouse-La Rochelle final. It'll be the Will Kelleher-Stuart Barnes derby. Uh, at Tottenham. Is at the Spurs is, is how we use it. I'm not going there. I, I, yeah. I can't. <laughs> I watch that one on the telly. Tottenham. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. I'm sure once the knockouts, the last 16 comes around, it will be a, a great round of rugby. But next up, we'll leave the European chat for there. We'll discuss the big news from last week. Lewis Reese zamitz moved to the NFL and Joe Schmidt being appointed as the Wallabies head coach. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So last week, I was walking along on my phone, got sent this news that Lewis Reese Samet, the statement he put out, that he was stepping away from rugby. Important to point out that he wasn't retiring, but he is pursuing a career in the NFL through the NFL's international player pathway. Genuinely, I don't, I can't remember if ever or the last time that I was stopped in my tracks and that I stopped what I was doing and couldn't quite believe what I was reading. I mean, Will, it's quite, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? We've yeah. seen players do it before. We saw Christian Wade do it, a number of others, but he's 22 years old, over 30 caps for Wales. He was on the last. Lions tour and he's stepping away from rugby with immediate effect yeah yeah bombshell I mean it was as you say a story that caught everyone by surprise that there was I had heard a very slight inkling of it and it was maybe something I should have checked out more fulsomely but I heard a little thing from someone going like oh there's a lot of chatter in Wales that he might try the NFL and sort of dismissed it <laughs> as a ludicrous idea and then there you go it happened the next week but it was just madness like he seemingly told Warren Gatland about an hour before the squad announcement he would have been in the squad clearly um, and then obviously you see Welsh fans going 
seeing that um, Warren Gatlin had said that he wasn't that impressed by Emmanuel Faye Boso or their coaches weren't, and he hasn't really met him. And you think, oh, he'd be quite a good sort of immediate replacement for Lewis Rees Summit, wouldn't he? So I think there's there's sort of two strands to it, maybe. Unbelievable opportunity for the lad, 22 years old. Why not chase the dream? His dad played, Elgin Eldham had a nice piece talking about the story of his dad who played, uh, he's called Joe Zamet, so his mum's Reese. so there's the there's the double-barreled link. And he played for Cardiff Bay Tigers in the 80s, an NFL team, or NFL, or American football team in Cardiff. And they he actually played a match at King's Home in the era where Channel 4 had the rights to the NFL and it was all kind of new and exciting for a British audience. His dad played American football. So there is some link there. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really difficult. So I'm not very au fait with my NFL, but speaking to people who are, again, this is going to be seriously tough. Like Christian Wade has been saying, he's going to have to get some dark places. It's lonely, really difficult. I remember talking to Christian Scotland Williamson, who who rugby fans will remember played for Worcester, made some belting tackle in one game and got spotted, ended up at the Pittsburgh Steelers, did tried a bit with them, got onto a practice squad, but never quite played an NFL game. And he was set, he was a tight end, I think. And he was saying how mentally taxing it is. You've got to learn thousands of plays and be able to repeat them at the drop of a hat and don't drop the ball. If you drop the ball, you're gone. You get cut really quickly. Um, so it's going to be really hard. He's going to go on a 10 or 11 week intensive course. At the moment, he's really not doing it for the money because he'll take a massive pay cut to do to do this but has the potential, clearly, if he makes it to make it a fortune. But the other strand of it too is, what does it say for rugby if you can't keep one of your star players? Well, that was going to be my question to you, Barnsley, is, is it bad for the sport? As Will says, great opportunity personally for Reese Samet, but is there something wider it says about the sport of rugby union at the moment? I think so. I mean, he plays in the Gloucester team um, that are struggling to get their act together, but more importantly, he plays in a Welsh team where Warren Gatland has got a... a, a a very good win ratio over his career there. If you look at being a winger in Wales and the excitement and the opportunities, then it's not so good. So, you know, good luck to the bloke. Go and try something new. He he He's 22, so he can come back. But, you know, it, it's like the thing we say about England. Do you want to keep playing rugby if it's so dull and tedious and all you're doing as a talented winger is sprinting flat out and jumping up and chasing kicks? Is that all rugby is? Because I see so many wingers in these British Isles and Ireland whose job is to be chasers. They should be finishers first and foremost. They're not. So there's a question that needs to be asked about Gloucester, about Wales, and about how we approach the game of rugby. I, I've never been one of these people who said, ah, it's about entertainment. I played the game. I was obsessed with winning. We're coming through slightly different times now. Cultures have changed and there has to be a capacity to entertain supporters and to entertain players who have a high range of skills that aren't being utilised. And I just think Louis Rizamet, if he was playing, if he was playing for France and he was in Damien Penaud's position, he would not be going to try out mm. with American football. If he was I an All Black, he wouldn't be going out. He'd be where he was and happy. Yeah, I suppose the sort of wider point is. Individuals can make individual decisions and they're not sort of saying rugby's terrible and I'm leaving because of it. But it it does make you think, doesn't it? If if one of the stars of the game, and like Lewis Free Summit, there's quite a significant amount of the Netflix documentary. One of the episodes is focusing on him, which is people are now laughing already. It's the Netflix curse that's happened to Formula One drivers. Um, but you just sort of think... Rugby is never, ever, ever going to get even close to kissing the toes of NFL financially, cultural cut through, America's game, all that. There's not a chance it's anywhere close to it. And it cannot and never will compete with it. Everything behind it. There's there's not a chance. If someone wants to go, there's nothing that rugby can do to stop them. But what but you are less likely to want to go if you are doing all yeah. the things that you have enjoyed since the moment you laced your boots and started playing rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're of told that that's not what it's about and you've got to do something else, you think, well sod this, I'll go and try something else. I was joking. Have a go. Good luck to resummit. When when the news dropped, questions are about union, not about the wing. Yeah, yeah. I was joking with some friends and colleagues that he's now going to another a place in the world that doesn't give him the ball. 
<laughs> spent a couple of seasons playing for Wales and Gloucester not getting much of the ball and now he's playing a sport where you catch it once a game sometime barely see it <laughs> Harry Mallander was the yeah. other name as well which it yeah. got less less recognition for un- obvious understandable reasons in that he's had his issues with injury and he's moved away from England to play and he's also he's trying to be a kicker as well which I think probably easier to nail that than a, being a wide receiver or running back or running yeah. back yeah is a, is a different thing but yeah, as we say, it's a really interesting story. The other bit of international news from last week is that Joe Schmidt is the new Wallabies head coach, replacing uh, as predicted on our. Do you remember Alfie when we pick out World Fifteen and I? We were talking about Australia need to get their act together, and I said it's not Intel, but this is my maybe what I hope for twenty twenty four is that they get Joe Schmidt and Mike Cat. They've done one of those. It'll be interesting if Mike Cat joins. That's a great appointment. Like as much as he maybe ran out of steam with Ireland or made it too game plan and too tight and technical and people weren't enjoying their time with Ireland when they were there which culminated in that massive defeat in the quarterfinal of the 19 World Cup he completely revamped their entire structure and system and working with David Nusifora who he will be working with the sort of head of performance down in Australia it doesn't seem like there's a better man to sort out a completely broken system than Joe Schmidt ahead of that Lions tour yeah and him against Farrell when we were talking about the Lions series, we were saying, what a shame, it'll probably be a 3-0 series. The Lions could probably win all of the tour games as well. But now you've got a Joe Schmidt, Andy Farrell narrative in there. That's awesome. Like, Even if the rugby isn't amazing, you've immediately got a narrative you can get your teeth into, which helps with the Lions, doesn't it? Joe Schmidt, um, he made a howler of a mistake uh, by 2019. He had become obsessively game plan. But... Coaches can be like players. They can make mistakes and they can learn from them. And I think going back to New Zealand, he loosened he loosened up the all-black management a little bit. I know that uh, back three were waxing lyrical about what he was doing for them. He, he's, he's a great rugby brain and he might have made a mistake in Ireland, but he's exactly what Australia need. They should have uh, spent the Aussie dollars on him instead of Eddie Jones, but that's history. Well, he certainly got... A big task ahead of him, Joe Schmidt, but I agree with both of you that I think he's a fascinating appointment and I hope is able to turn the fortunes of the Wallabies around in the build-up to that Lions series. New Zealand already had a training camp with Scott Robertson this year, so lots to do for him. Uh, We'll leave that there. Coming up next on the podcast, we mentioned it already on the episode, but the new Netflix documentary comes out this week all about last year's Six Nations and myself and Will are going to have a chat to the executive producer, James Gay-Reese. Well, James, good to see you. Thanks for coming in to see us. Pleasure. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So Six Nations Full Contact coming out on Wednesday of this week, 24th of January. How how are you feeling now? You've been so involved in this project. It's done, it's dusted, it's ready to go. Are you nervous about how it's received? It's a shoe-in. It's a shoe-in. Yeah, okay, no, love that. <laughs> no, listen, you, you, you know, you make, you as you say, you're in the tunnel making these things for such a long time. And um, it's always good when uh, D-Day arrives, but, you know, it's impossible to know how it's going to land. And, you know, it's just the luck of the film gods at this point in time just to see if it connects with an audience. Hopefully the timing is good. You know, the World Cup was really, it was, was a well-regarded, popular event. So hopefully there's a lot, you know, the interest in rugby is sitting, feeling quite fresh going into the Six Nations. So, yeah, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. How did you find the whole experience? So you've done a lot of these now. Um, the most famous one, obviously, Drive to Survive. We heard anecdotally from around teams and things about a lot of the teething problems. It all happened quite late, that it was all signed yeah. off. Players frustrated they weren't told that it was coming or that they haven't made the final cuts and all that sort of thing. How did you and your team find working in rugby as opposed to maybe the other sports that you've done this in? Listen, it was it was quite a... Um, what's the right word? It was definitely you know a little bit um, intense at the beginning because we didn't have much of a getting-to-know-you sort of uh, period. We were meant to be in the training camps and then for what, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't happen with a lot of the teams. But to be fair to them, you know, they all did work really hard to try and get on the right page pretty quickly. And by the end of it, it was actually working pretty well, I think, um, which gives me a lot of confidence, um, you know, for next season if we if we go again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any time you're doing one of these access shows with athletes, it, it's you can't spend enough time in the preamble, in the warm-up, explaining what we're trying to achieve, why. Because I think, you know, most people are naturally suspicious of journalists, filmmakers, whatever you want to be. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's um, you can't spend enough time earning people's trust. 
And uh, we didn't have quite enough time this on the first season, but we did make up for lost ground, as did the unions. So yeah, I think uh, I think also the issue you have in team sports, which is different to say full swing of the golfers or even Formula One, which is really two drivers and a team principle. When you've got a team ethic to navigate, working out who's going to put their hand up and be in the show takes a little bit of time, especially if you haven't had that sweetener. So yeah, it's um it's a different dynamic to navigate. But um, like I said, I'm really pleased with how we ended up. So how did you navigate that then if you're coming in fairly last minute of working out? Was it a case of the players were told this is happening? You can go and have a chat with the guys from Netflix if you want to be involved more. Like, how did that all go come about? I think in reality, most of these teams have characters who are pretty outward going and plenty of people who just aren't that. They just want to do the job and go home. Do you know what I mean? So I get it. I mean, you know, I'm never going to be the subject of documentary. Do you know what I mean? Nobody would find it interesting enough, but I wouldn't put myself forward for it because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a leap of faith. But there are obviously some extroverts who wanted to, you know, to get involved and some people who were really happy to share their story. Um, thank God. So, um, you know, like society... It's a microcosm of society of all different types of characters. And, you know, one thing is for sure, you definitely can't force somebody to do it who doesn't want to do it, and nor should you. But luckily, there were enough people who did volunteer to come in to get into the mix. Um, and same with coaches. Some coaches naturally feel comfortable doing it and some just don't fancy it. And, you know, it's fair enough. And it's worth pointing out as well, and you're a big rugby fan yourself. Like, What's your relationship with the game? How did you, did you play the game? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I went to school in London, played to first 15 level, uh, played for London Welsh a bit on and off when I was really young, and then got to university and, you know, looked at the size of the blokes there and I was just like, forget about it. That's just like, I did also have a really bad knee injury, so that was the end of that really. But um, no, it was just, you know, there's a gap between school and university level. Totally. I was exactly the same. I don't know about you, Will, whether you tried playing at uni, but I was I, the I same. did a bit I, at uni, but not that high a standard. Flair 15 at um, Exeter Uni, the fifth. Oh, okay. Now, well, at least you yeah. played. I did exactly yeah. the same thing there. And it, I, I knew that once I left school that that was probably my level. I look at my friends that still play now and they're playing men's rugby at an amateur level and still the stuff they go through is ridiculous even at that level. No, I was a hooker as well, which I'm totally the wrong shape. So you can just about get away with it. It's up to about 17 or 18. But then you got sort of 24-year-old men. It was horrible. So because you are a rugby fan, like I've read stuff you're talking about doing the Tour de France documentary. And when you, before you started it, you weren't necessarily a signed-up cycling fan, but you became it via doing the series. Did that inform what you wanted it to look like at the end? Because you would be the sort of person, if you weren't doing your job, who would be tuning in because you go, I really want to know what happened to Wales that week of the England game or whatever. And how did that kind of inform how you produced the whole series? I'm just a sucker, right, for any behind-the-scenes access in sport. It doesn't really matter what sport. You could Honestly, it could be... Actually, my friend of mine just made that documentary about Ronnie O'Sullivan, and I love seeing the behind-the-scenes of that, you know. He made a film... I did a film about Stephen Gerrard. It's the same director. I'm just... Honestly, I just love seeing behind the curtain. So any half-time change room, anywhere in any sport, I'm in. So that's, you know... I definitely wanted to kind of uh, help shine a light on... Because I think a lot of sports today is so incredibly spun and PR'd because there's so much at stake for numbers. The amounts of money involved are huge. Contracts are massive, especially in some of the other sports. But so they're very, you know, the narrative is very controlled, as you guys probably know as well as I do. So anytime you can get sort of slightly underneath the, the kind of top line narrative and work out what's really going on and how do you actually get a team to gel and how does a driver really get in the zone for, for that fast up, whatever it is, anything that humanizes athletes a little bit, because there's so much broadcast sport and obviously, there's more behind-the-scenes stuff now, partly due to what we're doing. But you don't really get to see the behind-the-scenes that much. And um, it's probably been a good reason for that. But I just think modern audiences are fascinated by athletes. And they really want to know who these men and women are, are away from the pitch of the track because you don't get to see it very often. And because, they, you know, at the end of the day, any TV works or, you know, any sort of film even works if the characters are relatable. But if you're watching a rugby match, just from the broadcast point of view, you could have, you can appreciate it because a great try is a great try. But you can't relate to those athletes because you don't see their human realities. You know, you don't see them away how they're having a good day at the marriage or a bad day at the marriage. Do you know what I mean? So, in order to really connect with an audience, you need to make them relatable, and you can only do that away from training pictures and away from match day. Yeah, it's, that's kind of what came across, and I've, I've watched nearly all of it before release kind to your friends at Netflix for letting us do that and it, it seems the theme I've got from it 
is that the, the guys you focused on often are really celebrating their physicality and the brutality of the sport, but also the softer edges off the pitch. So like Ellis Genge takes us around Bristol and tells us about his background and Andrew Porter talks about his mental health issues and losing his mum. Seb Negri talks about his um, nearly dying on the pitch, basically, against England and then coming back and sort of struggling with confidence. Gail Fiku, similarly, with his background. Was that what you were trying to do? Almost, it's the gladiators in the arena, but then the sort of the reality of the guys behind the mask, I suppose. Was that the key? It's exactly that. It's that incredible contrast because, again, you know, well, I'm equally fascinated by the way and what it takes an individual to get into that battle-ready state. Because, you know, somebody described playing the All Blacks as like being in a car crash. You know, it's so incredibly physically demanding. The game is so fast and so hard. And so, you know, if you're, um doesn't matter if you're damn big or if you're, you know, a unit like Andrew Porter, you know, you've got to put your head in where you don't really want to and commit to it. And, you know, you guys played rugby. I just remember in rugby that it was the kind of, it was the tackles where you slightly pulled out when you got hurt. If you really commit to something, you're kind of okay. International level rugby is an incredibly tough space. And I just think that contrast between that, that as you said, the gladiatorial mindset and then going home and playing with the kids in the evening. It's just like, how do you how do you get up and then how do you get down? Well, I find that interesting, just the, the space we're in at rugby in the moment, is that rugby's not that keen to celebrate its physicality because of the concussion issues, the class action lawsuits that are going on, the fact that they're trying to convince parents that this is a good thing that their kids are getting involved in. So that's why I found it interesting that your series, and actually I think fans will quite enjoy the fact that you're really dialing up the physicality and celebrating something that's actually quite fundamental to rugby. Was You did that on purpose, obviously. Well, no, it is, a, it is a physically demanding game. I don't think we didn't have to dial it up because it is, you know, like I said, the hits are astronomic and, you know, it's it's all or nothing, isn't it? You know, you can't play international rugby or any rugby at any level, I would imagine, at half speed. So it's just the nature of the beast. I mean, it is what it is. And um, I'm sure they'll work out a solution for that stuff. But it's, um, it's a brilliant game. I mean, I think that my hope for this of the series is that it does by humanizing these characters and making them more relatable you bring in a wider audience that's the the ambition right so when you were having your discussion i, I guess because the six nations and rugby generally has been keen to get on netflix and things like that and it sees it as this kind of silver bullet of like if we can get on there get more exposure more people in the games maybe don't lose so many clubs in england and all that sort of thing the knock-on effect what did they want from you what did they want to show from their side and conversely what were you coming from the other angle, saying, well, I really would like to shine this light on your sport. I don't think there was a huge divergence in what we wanted. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the episodes have just got to be entertaining, you know, and that's what maybe, you know, people struggle to understand is that it's, you know, A, you're trying to tell a week of, you know, you've got six teams playing each other over the course of a week and all their training. You're doing it in a 40-minute episode. So, you know, you can't share everything to every, about everybody all the time. You've got to kind of cherry pick your narrative and then service that narrative in the way that you do with any, any comedy, film, documentary, any form of content, commercial, you know. We just wanted to, you know, make it feel really dynamic, really exciting. We wanted to present the rugby in a really sort of fresh way. And actually, I took my eight, 19 and 22-year-old daughters to that screening the other day and they've got no interest in sport at all. Maybe one sports Liverpool, but... But they're not interested in rugby, cycling, golf, tennis. But they thought the matches were really exciting because they've been delivered in a certain way. But they also found the characters really appealing, you know. So I think that, listen, everything, all of these, any sort of form of content, like I said earlier, is is kind of contingent on compelling characters, you know, on and off the pitch. Who, who do you hope watches it? Because I suppose that with the challenge with all this is trying to give enough for the diehard fan of that sport as opposed to someone in a completely different territory who's never even seen rugby and not over explaining things for the people who know what they're talking about and not under explaining things for the people who don't so what 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 were you who are you aiming it for this series well as many people as possible obviously but i think you know certainly on the shows like in fact i'd say pretty much every other show the real 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 diehard formula one fans the really diehard golfs the really diehard Tour de France fans are like it's a bit thin for me I know so much more about it but I think listen I think if you unless you're like ultra diehard then like me as a sports fan I'm a big Liverpool fan I'm a big Wales fan I'll watch most I mean I would I'd watch my shows to be honest with you because I like the entertainment factor I like the way the journey they take you on but I'm not like a mad Formula One fan and I think that if you 
if you take for granted the fact that the diehard rugby fans are going to stick with the Six Nations for the next 25 years, then you really need to regenerate the audience. And I think all these shows are aiming at a younger audience, if possible. But that's certainly been the case on Formula One. It's certainly been the case. I think all of them, truthfully. Yeah. So is that why I'm giving a couple of spoilers, maybe, but this will be out on Wednesday. But there isn't. it's fairly light, I would say, on tactical information or sort of the nuances of a game maybe and it's quite strong on the characters and the and the men playing the matches it i guess some of that is access because it's unlikely that steve borswick and andy farrell are going to go this is our plan to beat france can you just put that on netflix thanks but also that would it write off for quite a lot of viewers if they go this is too much for me rugby is a complicated game so trying to explain the difference between a ruck and a mall would take you an episode in itself, do you know what I mean? And I think, you know, it's, I think you have to take a view on that early on. And we did certainly on Drive Survive, you know, don't think the average Drive Survive audience is, in, is interested in tyre strategy. I'm not. I think you've just got to present the sport in a compelling way because what happens if the show works and they, people do start watching the live, but they watch it in their own way. And if they're watching it because they want to see what Lando does before a race and, oh, it's Lando Norris, he's wearing a different pair of trousers today, that's fine. Do you know what I mean? They don't have to necessarily know that his kind of, you know, his tire strategy and race in lap 44 is going gonna, is gonna to be good or bad. And I think the same with rugby. I think it's such a complicated game that, you know, you have to present it in, a, in an accessible way. And also the teams are protective of their IP. I don't think necessarily an audience is that interested in it. But, I mean, I would be to some extent. But I think it's, um, I think, you, again, it's got to take a view that it's just, it's, it's too onerous to, especially for a new audience to understand. This is one of the things I was fascinated to ask you, James, was... When it comes to something like this in sports documentaries, how does the sign-off work in terms of, I don't know, Six Nations or the individual unions? Do they have to approve everything? Like, what's their ability in, in terms of what they can they say can go in or can't go in? They don't have final cuts. And Netflix has editorial control on everything that they make, unless you're Martin Scorsese, right? So um, that's totally standard. And all these teams in all these sports have a review process. And it's predetermined what they can review in that review process. So, but you know, it's a relationship thing. So if somebody says, oh God, I really didn't want that to come out. I really, it's embarrassing. It's going to be problematic for me. Then you weigh it up. You see it on the run, it's not as bad as you think it is. Or yes, you're not, you see your point, we'll take it out. Is that just part of the natural process then? Or is there any frustration there? My view has always been, as someone who's not involved in making these sorts of documentaries, but as a consumer, I suppose, my gut instinct is... The best ones are always the ones where there isn't the ability for people to do that. You do. You just end up, You basically, you, you work out what is the right line in the sand to draw because you do want to nurture the relationship and you do want people to come back and cooperate going forward. But at the same time, you can't dilute it to the extent that somebody who's outside of the process may think is warranted because nobody's going to watch it. And that's the, was the balance. You've got to create something which is watchable because that's in everybody's best interest. But at the same time, you've got to get you've got to be on the right side of the line. So um, yeah, it's a balancing act basically. But uh, no, nobody has editorial control. I think that maybe this is a, a point I would make. Having watched most of it, is that rugby can be quite good at talking the talk, but not necessarily walking the walk. Like it's it's for a long time said we need to grow the game, we need to engage with Netflix, we need to do this, that, and the other. And lots of teams have done, but it, I think it's fairly obvious who hasn't in the series and we'll let the viewers watch it but I think maybe that's the fundamental challenge for rugby at the moment it kind of wants its cake and eats it as well it kind of wants to be on Netflix and be shown to this brilliant wide audience but also or no but don't tell them about that even though it's a year on for example like I would find it fascinating if we were to be told this was our game plan or this was a strike move we were planning for the France game let's say Hugo Keenan going through the middle and scoring Ireland and then you saw it and you go wow look there you go they trained it in the week and they've done that but I can understand that someone like Andy Farrell and the coaching team would go no way you're not coming in and seeing that so that's that must be your challenge encapsulated I guess yeah it just you know it just depends whether that sort of uh content a fits in an episode and b that's the type of show you want to make you know maybe more that Andrew Porter opening up about his backstory is, you know, so it's all, you know, listen, it sort of depends what you can get. You sort of, you know, you go in there, you try to charm everybody into complying or, you know, giving access, and then you weigh up what your options are, you know. Um, but more is generally more. I mean, my my sort of 
mantra is that for the teams that really commit to the process, it ends up being less painful because you're not in and out. You know, it's when people are in and camera crews coming in and out all the time. It's really disruptive, and that's what they're all their main consideration is: is like can't disrupt the performance potential of the team, but it's less impacted if you just stay. If you basically if you commit to each other, because the person on the ground becomes more confident, he knows how to read the room better. He's not looking over his shoulder all the time. Thinking he's about to get he or she's about to get thrown out all the time. And we definitely did have much more buy-in from certain countries. And you can see the, net, the end product. But I would say that it did get better um, throughout the process. To, so some of the, the teams that struggled at the beginning kind of did, the pennies did drop by the end. And I have to say, without naming names, that the overall feedback and the kind of meetings we've had so far with the unions in advance of season two's filming, it's been night and day, to be fair to them. The penny does seem to drop. And they're like, okay, we're going to get on with this now. I'm sure you have and will keep having these conversations, but if you were to have, and you're never going to get this, but no holds barred access to everything and every door was open to you, what would you like to show in in a following series that you think viewers would be fascinated by? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I can answer it sort of by proxy because my dream project is to, because I'm a massive Liverpool fan, right? And I could apply this to any team. It could be the Welsh rugby team or it could be the Ineos cycling team or whatever. But my dream project would be to, even though Netflix tends to do the entire league or competition, would be to really have complete access to one team. Like you said, totally unfiltered. So obviously for me, it'd be Liverpool or Wales. But I'd love to be the Oaken Klopp for an entire season and be in every meeting. And to your point, because, you know, I think football's not dissimilar in the sense that, you know, they practice you know, patterns of play over and over and over again. But in the game, you just think it's all just happening in the moment. But you know that they're going as plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, depending on what the opposition are doing. And I would love to see the actual granular plot magic in action, you know, in just like in naked detail or Gatland. And and, what, and the, the sort of second half of this question, if you were to speak to the coaches directly... And we know that some of them are skeptical because we deal with them a lot, and there are some that are more open than others. But what who are maybe reluctant to open their doors? How would you try and convince them or tell them, look, this is going to be all right. Like this is going to help sell you, sell the team, sell the sport. What would you say to them to, I don't know, turn them around if they need turning? I'm not just trying to avoid the question, but I generally don't think a lot of them need. Um that much convincing now I think from what I've seen from because I've met all of them post season one in the main and um, I've been surprised really pleasantly surprised by the sea change in attitude especially with some of the bigger teams and so listen I think that to your point I don't think rugby is totally tone deaf I think there is an understanding that you know it probably would on balance be better if this show worked than if it didn't work for the game and um, for the reasons that we all know and I think you know we all want to see rugby in a healthy state and I think the reality is is that the train has left the station, you know, and it's not all my fault. You know, lots of these shows have been made, more will continue to be made. Is when I saw half time in the French football changing room and Deschamps giving a speech, and that was the half time of the World Cup final they had cameras in there. I was like, Well, if they're giving access, that's about as big as it gets. So, you know, I think other teams will probably follow suit. The the thing that we were talking about this before, me and Alfie, and that I find ironic is that Rugby was first. Rugby Union was first with all this. Living with the Lions, 97, was the doyen of this still the genre, best. wasn't it? And completely all access in the pub with the guys giving John Bentley a camera. And it's funny that rugby's now trying to catch up for having started it all 27 years ago. I know, but it's a different age. There's social media, you know. So, but it was. I mean, I've watched that series so many times because they stick it on there before every Lions still. But it's, it's dynamite. They are film. Your cameramen and women are filming now, aren't they, for the second series, hoping that it gets yeah, exactly. recommissioned? Because we have to get ahead of it. Because otherwise, if we wait until it comes out, you know, it's too late. But we do that on all the shows. There's always a, a bridging shoot. If there is a second series, because a lot of fans will look at this and go, oh, "Maybe it was a shame. It, it's taken a year to come out." And there's lots of reasons why that would have happened. But would you like to let it be released earlier, or do you really need all that time to get it together? If you think about it, this, you know, it's. Um, yeah, because you basically shoot the whole Six Nations, then you edit for ages. You know, sadly, it takes it's like six months of editing. How many hours of footage do you have for the whole thing? Must be I thousands. Mean, you basically shoot twenty to one, so twenty hours of 
footage to one hour actual ends up on screen. So, no, but yeah, it's just the editing process takes a long time and then the Netflix needs three months to reversion it for all the international territories. Okay. And then, Captions and everything yeah. else. And, yeah, but it, gets, it gets shrinking every year. I think AI will make that much quicker. Because the perception when it was, we were told, oh, it's going to be released in January 2024, everyone thought, oh, that's because the teams don't want to reveal stuff before the World Cup. But that's not right. It's more that it just takes that long to release. A yeah, we wouldn't have got it done in time for the uh, before the World Cup. Well, James, good luck for the release on Wednesday. Thank you. I'm sure our audience will will be watching it. We hope that it is very well received. We've seen, well, we've seen quite a few of the episodes. I saw the first episode, so I'm no no doubt there's loads in there that fans are going to get really behind. American and excited viewers about. might be interested. There's quite a bit of Lewis Ree Summit having just moved to play American football. Yeah, I was going to ask you your reaction to that news <laughs> or whether it was yeah, like, we were oh. planning shoots with him and they suddenly just disappeared. <laughs> but good luck to him. Uh, if anybody can do it, I suppose it's him. Yeah, quite right. Thanks for coming in to see us, James. Pleasure. Thank you for having and, me. Uh, yeah, as I say, all the best. Coming up next uh, on this week's episode, we'll finish off back with Stuart Barnes with our god or goddess of the week. Well, thanks again to James for coming in to see us. Fascinating chat and. I'm really intrigued, Will, to see what the reaction is of the Netflix documentary. Yeah. I've seen the first episode, you've seen a couple of them, but to see what the reaction is amongst both rugby fans and the kind of wider public who maybe don't have as big an interest yeah. in the sport. I th- it, was, it was a point we were asking James about, but it, it's that wider thing of who is this for? Is it for the casual rugby fan? Is it for the diehard rugby fan? Or is it for people in America, Australasia, Asia, anywhere else around the world who don't understand the game and getting them to it? And also, what does that then, what's the knock-on of that? Do you want more people to come to matches at club level? Because the Six Nations stadiums are already sold out, so there's not a problem there. And it's always the way, isn't it? Rugby talks about wanting to be on Netflix and wanting to show itself, but does rugby show itself enough? There's a lot in there that's really interesting so it will be fascinating how it's received and if they do another one we will wait and see let's finish the episode as we always do with a god or goddess of the week a few different directions people could go in here Stuart Barnes what what are you thinking I'm thinking of heading to Toulouse I'm thinking of an Englishman uh I'm thinking of Jack Willis he's a very fine player England knew that he went to Toulouse He's now no longer available, but I don't want us to forget about this little god. In the Barnes household, we don't just have the one god. we got many, and Jack Willis is our god of the weekend and the week to come. Yeah, he was awesome, wasn't he? So many turnovers. Steve Borthwick talked about the Six Nations being the competition where the ball gets turned over more than any other. So he probably... Quite annoyed that you can't pick one of the best turnover merchants in the game. You've helped me out here, Alfie, with your incredible dedication to the notes on our Word document. But I think you are correct. There's, there's, a, there's you put three honourable mentions in there, which I feel like we should mention. So the Ospreys winning in South Africa, awesome effort. Yeah, that, that was um, in the Challenge Cup, Newcastle, Newcastle first win the season, and that was another, like it's been a, a week of news. So that latest bit of news we haven't touched on was Alex Codling's gone. They lost all 14 matches in Europe and the Prem this season up until this weekend. So Alex Codling's gone. They're sorting out the legal paperwork there. Steve Diamond's coming in. He's verbally committed, it seems, to coaching them until 25-26 season. So it's not just a sort of short-term Sam Allardyce, keep them up type job, even though there's no relegation, we know. And that'd be really interesting. I felt like he could have done a, a similar job at Worcester if that had ever survived. Like he had... Now you're seeing them in the other places. You're seeing what he could have done with people like Ollie Lawrence and Finn Smith playing together and all that. So that's a good one for Newcastle to have won. They beat Perpignan away, which is going to do a lot for them, I think. Flight was delayed on the way home yeah, as well. classic. <laughs> well, yeah, the storm. I think Exeter and Bath are stuck in France too. Exeter playing Bayonne and uh, Bath in Toulouse. So everyone's having a nightmare trying to get home. And the other one on your sheet, which is definitely worth mentioning, is the Black Lion getting 17,000 fans. Uh, the Georgian side against Claremont, which is a bigger crowd than all of the Prem sides, really, isn't it? Like, it's more than Quinn's got against uh, Ulster. So that's an awesome effort. However, where are you going? Roundabout way of saying Finn Smith. <laughs> <laughs> like we've talked about, we talked about last week, but he's 21 and he, he's a very different player to Marcus Smith, but he's doing stuff that's just so impressive. Like, Smith has had a, had a period when he was young where you're watching him every week and going, He's he's impressing me so much all the time. But Finn Smith's doing it in a different way. 
But is, is his game more suited to test rugby? We'll maybe find that out over the coming weeks if he gets a cap in Italy, perhaps. But he just looks like he's seeing the ball big, as they say in cricket, don't they? When you're in, and you're you in. can just, yeah, you're hitting it to all parts. And that drop goal, awesome. The way he managed the game. God of the week, Finn Smith. There you go. And worth mentioning him pointing you in the direction of Stuart Barnes's latest article as well, talking about... Thank you about, for the plug, yes. About, uh, well... Stuart, you can do a better job of explaining it than I can. But essentially, the the nine and ten combinations are open to England, um, which are also at the clubs, Quinns and Northampton. Yeah, I, I think halfbacks are one of the areas where symbiosis is so important. Honestly, if you know what your scrum half's going to do and vice versa, it gives you a split second extra. And that's all it needs, even at international level, to make a difference. And there is a possibility that England could be quite radical and just say, we're going to go one half with the Harlequins and one half with the Northamptons. Would probably be Northampton to start because Danny Kerr is a very good broken field sort of player and so would Marcus Smith be. But it's not about picking one or the other. So that's why in Monday's Times column, I, I thought it's time for us to smile at the Smiths. That's what I say. Very good. So get a copy of the paper or get it at the Times online. Well, I wanted to mention for my God of the Week, Sam Graham, which is a bit more niche than Jack Willis or Finn Smith, but only because I remember when he was at Bristol and he couldn't really break into the team and ended up joining Doncaster, where he went away, became a crucial part of that side in the championship, was named in the championship team of the year, picked up by Northampton. And it seems to me like he's going from strength to strength. And I just loved that Munster-Northampton game. I know there wasn't necessarily, as we've said already, the jeopardy we might have wanted on a lot of the games over the weekend. But I thought in a game in isolation, just for for that match was outstanding. And I thought he had a great game as well. Okay, I've got a 30-second story on Sam Graham that people might not know. Um, So one of his previous jobs was uh, working as a cook at Penny Hill Park, which is where England trained. (laughs) So he may have made Courtney Laws a club sandwich back in the day when he used to, and now he's clanging and banging with him in the back row. So that's quite fun, isn't it? He used, to, he used to cook He used to cook at Penny Hill. Very good. So we'll leave it there for this week. Next week on the podcast will be our preview of the Six Nations Ooh. as we're into Six Nations territory. So that'll be coming up for you next Monday. Make sure you're getting your copy of the paper and subscribed online for all the latest build-up and everything else as well in the domestic game. Barnsley, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Will, what's it now for you? Busy, busy, busy time. Yeah, so England, uh, Alex is going to be covering England there in a camp in Spain. And then we're off to, I'm off there on Sunday and then straight into Italy week. And when we come back, it's Wales week. So it all kicks off, doesn't it? It's all all quite exciting, isn't it? We're all motoring along. I appreciate you joining us for another week on The Ruck. Make sure you are subscribed or follow us wherever you get your podcasts from and leave a review as well. We'll see you next week. 